Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on international business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to the Culture Matters podcast. Uh, yet another interview, and this time we have Pierre de la Lande. Pierre is yet another Frenchman living in London, and Pierre is actually the head of public affairs within Eurostar. It's a very interesting um, interview where we get the full perspective of a Frenchman who has been living for a couple of years in the capital of the United Kingdom and all the ins and outs of how that goes and how Eurostar works as well let's not delay and get right to the interview it's time for this week's guest at the culture matters podcast good morning pierre how are you good morning chris i'm fine thanks Okay, well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, it's uh, this time we have, but we're we're going to talk talk more about you as an individual. Uh, this this song from Sting always sort of resonates with me when I, I get a Frenchman on the on the program. I've had a couple on the on the Culture Matters podcast already. You're not a uh, an Englishman in New York, but actually you're a Frenchman in London. Pierre, Pierre de la Lande, that's your full name. And um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you come from originally? Uh, where are you now? And what would be your cultural frame of reference? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the background is pretty easy. I really was born and bred in Normandy. Uh, that's where all of my family comes from. Uh-huh. So um, the parents, grandparents, and you could spot maybe a link to the UK here with a long time ago Norman invasions. Uh, but really, until I was 1920, I stayed in France. I studied a bit in northern France. And then my first exposure to uh, a foreign environment really was when I w- went for an exchange in, in Canada for one year. So that was in the early 2000s. And, and that really gave me a taste of, of traveling abroad, of meeting different cultures, getting to know different cultures. And when I went back in France, I thought, mm, I'd like to, to explore this a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I, I focused a bit more on, on, on the European Union studies, yeah. thinking that Brussels would be a, a very good place to meet different cultures. Uh, and that happened a few years ago. Um, so I moved in Brussels in 2003 and stayed there for nearly nine years okay. and working on European Union matters. Uh, and then after those nine years, I, I had the opportunity to move to London, and that's been where I've been living for the last two years. So I haven't moved a lot, uh, but both Brussels and London and Canada have been very different experiences with uh, very different learnings, I guess. Okay, so London and, and, uh, and the US as well. And, yeah, and I Brussels mean, as well? Um, the, 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 the whole US thing or was more when I was in Canada. Obviously, I was very close to the border, so yeah. I, I traveled quite a lot. Uh, also, because as an exchange student, you don't always spend that much time studying, actually. <laughs> so I, I took the opportunity to really travel all along and uh, mostly on the East Coast. And, and that was a very, very interesting experience for me. Okay, excellent. I can uh, I can imagine that. It's, uh, I've been through the same experience. I don't know how old you were. I won't ask either. Uh, at that time, I was 13 when I first um, landed in the US. And it was in 1976. And then, then the world was still a big place. So I can I can imagine how, what an impact that has when you're coming from uh, from Europe. And just, just to make sure again, you work for the European Union. Um, and just because the majority of the, our listeners are in the United States, what does the European Union what would you do within a European Union? 
Sure. No, it's a very good question. I think it's not, frankly, only for US listeners. It's for most listeners in Europe also. Oh, that's true. Yes. A lot of them don't really have a, a concept of what it always is about. So I wasn't working for the institutions themselves. So the European Union has a parliament, a commission, a representative of member states that are in this grouping of, of states the, that the European Union is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was uh, I was doing public affairs there. So I was really doing lobbying, yeah. uh, as you have in, in the US, uh, just with uh, various member states and various representatives of, of the EU level. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've met a lot of people actually lobbying. Because uh, I, I live relatively close to Brussels, about um, was 15 miles or so. And I, I do meet a lot of people on um, uh, on these uh, these sort of semi-parties or networking events. And there are, there are, there are plenty of lobbyists there. But that's um, you moved on from there. You went to London. And now you work for a company called Eurostar. Now, pretty much every European will know Eurostar. But again, what does Eurostar do exactly? Well, it, it, it's a very it's a very good company to be into. Uh, we are the high speed operator, high speed train operator, linking London, Paris, and Brussels mm-hmm. uh, through the Channel Tunnel. So we are separate from the Channel Tunnel. That's Euro Tunnel. We use it. We are their biggest customer. Yeah. But our job is really to run trains, put people on those trains, and get them safely to where they want to 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 go. And that's mostly Paris and Brussels. But in the two years to come, we're expanding to Marseille, so south of France. And we're going to go to Amsterdam too. So it's very exciting times for for the company. That's really excellent. So currently, it's you do a high speed train operation between London, Brussels, and Paris. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, from London to to Brussels, how long does that take? It's two hours. Two hours, and London to to Paris. It's two hours and fifteen minutes. So it's it's really it's a really good service in terms of if you were to take the plane instead of the train, you would probably obviously take a bit less time to fly itself but with all of the security it would really take more time so i think part of the success is uh well the quality of service but also the just the speed of the service yeah. and the reliability of it yes i've used it many times and i would i would prefer eurostar anytime over a, a flight connection between either amsterdam london or brussels london or paris london because you can't beat the train like this Typically, I mean, if you're if you're flying to London and or either to London, it's mostly to London. You end up in 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 uh, in a holding queue for at least 45 minutes, is <laughs> doubling your flight time there. Um, is Eurostar a big company? It, it is. It's interesting because it, it, it's a very good question you ask. Many people assume it's much bigger than it is. Hmm. Uh, all in all, we have let's say 1,200 people working there. Uh, so this is split between Brussels, Paris, Lille in northern France, and and London. Uh, but the headquarters are in London, yeah. uh, and I would say that out of those twelve hundred people, probably seven, eight hundred of them. Seven, eight hundred, are. Pierre, sorry, Pierre, you we we missed that bit a little bit. So can you repeat that? You mentioned twelve so hundred people in the organization. Yes, exactly. And then seven. You mentioned seven hundred, and then you were cut out. Oh, sorry. Uh, seven hundred in uh, seven hundred of those twelve hundred are in uh, in uh, in the UK itself. Okay, or the majority of the operation. Well, oh yeah, a little bit the majority of the operation. Are you going to grow as well as an organization since you're expanding to Marseille and to Amsterdam? Yes, I think that's the plan. Uh, we certainly want to go to more destinations, and the the aim is to get people to consider the train alternative to planes. Mm. I think historically, especially from from the UK. Uh, people, when they want to go abroad, they they fly. And what we want to explain to them is that not only for destinations like Paris and Brussels, but also for much further away, like Amsterdam, like Western Germany, like Southern France, uh, there's a very good alternative because the high-speed network is developing. 
and they could go get there in five to six hours. So that, that's really the next big thing for us as a company and for European Rail, generally speaking. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, now, we're, we're talking to you as, uh, if I'm not mistaken, head of public affairs within Eurostar. Exactly. And um, other than doing this interview, what is your, what is your job about uh, given this organization, with, which is relatively small, which currently covers only, uh, well, two destinations or two countries? What, what do you do other than this interview? Uh, it's a very good question. Again, my, my mum usually doesn't really know what I'm doing. So <laughs> Explain I, it to I, your mum then. I, I, yeah, exactly. I'll try to be as clear as I can with her. Uh, I think my my job as uh, the head of public affairs or as a lobbyist really is to see what's going on uh, in politics, see what decision makers are thinking and try and see what and assess what is important for the company as a business. So if we have a strategy of going to Amsterdam, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that there's nothing in what the Dutch government is thinking about or what the EU is doing or what the UK government might be thinking about that might go contrary to what we want to do. And on the more positive side, sometimes there are ideas that we we think would be good to, to see in legislation or uh, improvements to the current regulatory regime and then we can go and meet these people and explain what the, the specific needs are. So in a nutshell that really is a lot of my job and the other bit is also discussing with local communities. Uh, so intermediate stations, people living close to our main stations, mm -hmm. uh, seeing what they're interested in, whether they would like more stops, explaining to them why it's possible or not possible and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. So you spend a lot of time in Westminster than in London? Um, it's it, 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 that's the interest of the of the job, I guess. I spend quite a lot of uh, of time in in London, indeed, in in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, which are the two houses for for the UK, mm -hmm. uh, but also in the European Parliament with the European Commission or in ministries in Paris. And then we've lost you a little bit. Are you still there? Very interesting. Uh, in decision makers are also interested in our plans for the future. Okay. All right. Well, we, we missed we missed a little bit of this um, of this answer because somehow Skype is uh, we're recording this in a Skype uh, Skype call by the way, and it's uh, it seems to be breaking up occasionally. But we got most of the uh, of the answer there. I'm I'm curious because if if uh, now talking to you a little bit longer, the, the 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 French accent sort of bubbles up a little bit more. But at first, I thought, wow, this is really amazing. A Frenchman almost getting rid of his French accent. Um, <laughs> how did you do that? Uh, I, I'm. Some people tell me I have a Dutch accent sometimes, so you would know better than I do. Uh, I but uh, yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I had good teachers, I guess, and I, I, I worked a lot with British people uh, over the years. So, uh, as a matter of fact, I never really worked in in, in France. Uh, so a lot of my colleagues have been throughout the years mm -hmm. in different positions, uh, just British people. So, yes. and then I've been living here for two years now, so it's it sort of. Um, also happens yeah in a way it grows on you as well but then again i think you you as a person also make an effort to speak that language um now eurostar the european company or british company if you want why do they choose a frenchman for this position that's daring uh i or think no, they, or not. They, no I, I in terms of eurostar it's not really a surprise um our CEO, for instance, is a Frenchman, uh -huh. uh, and a lot of my colleagues would be French living in the UK, or you would have British people living in France. I think the company is a lot about uh, getting cultures to meet and getting more out of this uh, of this exchange than you would otherwise have of people standing on on each side of the pond mm -hmm. of the of the channel. Yeah. So it's not much of a surprise. And then I think on more specifically on this job. 
um, because I need to be in Paris, in Brussels, and in London, mm-hmm. it it's not much of a of a surprise either. You you, you did you, you needed someone who was reasonably comfortable uh, in all three environments. Yeah. Uh, although obviously you never get the perfect match. Uh, hopefully, I, I was able to to bring something that 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 helped them with with their different political environments okay now of course then you're you're culturally attuned uh, typically to the french and to the brits i would guess because you you are french living in a in a uk or a british environment can you tell us a little bit about the the cultural diversity that's currently going on i hate that word diversity cultural differences within um, within eurostar what kind of population is there where does it cause friction and stuff like that or where does it actually go really smooth i think it's something we really work on a lot actually yeah. because it, it is important for for a company both in terms of getting the positives of having different cultures, so making sure that you really get the most of everyone, mm-hmm. and also avoiding the negatives of people not really understanding what the others mean. So uh, a typical example in what you would find from most French people uh, working within Eurostar would be uh, accusations towards the British people of, oh, they don't speak up their mind, they, they don't say what they actually mean. And I, I think it's always an interesting one, it's one you would... Oops, now it gets interesting. Hang on, hang on. Pierre, are you still there? What's the tool? Pierre, Pierre? It's just that it's clear, uh, but it's just that this this clarity is not exactly seen as such by, by the French colleagues. Okay, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna interrupt you really quickly, Pierre, yeah. because it really got interesting. I don't want to cut in this. Uh, I'm not going to edit this, uh, this the recording. Just go back a little bit. You know, you talked about acquisitions that the, the French... Uh, accuse the the Brits of something, and then you went. It cracked up again. So maybe you can uh, you can try. Sorry again. about this. That's all right. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, the, the main accusation you would hear sometimes is, oh, the, the the British people wouldn't wouldn't speak their mind clearly. They don't mean what they say. Yeah. And um, I, I think what what really is happening here is that to between two British people, you would have a conversation, and they would think, well, each of us have been perfectly clear. Yeah. It's just that the level of clarity. Uh, is not the same to a foreigner because the the codes, the cultural references might not be the same, and what you think is a direct answer might not be considered as such by another culture. Okay, that's the um, uh, the typical, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the typical understatements that the Brits use in their language. I, I think it is typically the, the most common one, and I'm sure that your listeners will have heard about this one before. Is is when when a British person says that's interesting to you, you probably should be a bit wary about what he actually means. Exactly. Uh, yes. and, and that's when you, you you know about it, but taking getting used to it is still one that uh, that takes some time. Yes. I, that, I, I use, um, there are a couple of these things. You can actually find them on the internet as well when you do a yeah. search probably on, on Brits and understatements. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do use that in my workshops as well. And there's a long slide. Um, the, the interesting one is a very nice one there. The other one I really like is that the, what the Brits also use is a statement like, I'm sure it's my fault. <laughs> and of course, if I say to you, I'm sure it's my fault, then you would say, you would think as a Frenchman, well, I know, I know it's, my, it's your fault. But it's actually totally reversed. And that, that creates and that creates a bit of a friction between the Brits and the, and the, uh, the French. Yeah, I, I think, it, I mean, it, not, not on an everyday basis, but we do have internal trainings to make sure all of those small potential frictions don't, don't appear and that people... Uh, understand that what is meant by the other by the other side is um, is what they what they actually meant yeah. and uh, n- not what they understood. Um, and w- one colleague put it to me that uh, 
France and the UK are both um, implicit cultures, but it's not just not the same implicit. Yeah. And that can create some tension sometimes. Okay, makes makes good sense. And can you reverse the the, uh, the example as well? What what are the what are the, the the Brits look at when they when they see quote unquote the French? Uh, I think they probably would consider us as sometimes a bit rude uh, mm-hmm. and a bit too straightforward. Uh, and I think this straightforwardness would be seen as as a sort of again helping the discussion move forward by 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 frenchmen uh but for a british person it might be seen a bit as as offensive in some cases so it, it's i think on both sides it's just about knowing that the others uh might express things differently mm. and one thing i always say to newcomers in the company whether they are french or british is uh try and and keep in mind that things might be a bit different and mm-hmm. uh, they might not be but just keeping this in mind as a as a warning mm-hmm. so that you always consider the possibility that uh, things are expressed or done differently on the other side and that's it's not about uh, something being done in the wrong way basically yeah and indeed basically what you're saying is that the intention is positive although it might come across as negative yes, yes. I, and and certainly i think when you when you live in the uk as a frenchman and there are a lot of french people living in, in london especially mm-hmm. uh what you find on a daily basis that a lot there are a lot of similarities between the two countries it's strikingly so much more i would argue than germans and french for instance mm. uh but uh but they don't but the, the surface of it or the appearance of it is very different yes yeah, yeah. And you have to sort of scratch beyond the surface to actually get a bit deeper and 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 then mutually understand each other exactly okay now you pointed out uh two points where there might be some friction can you also identify the points where actually it makes really good sense to work together or stuff that's i call it stuff or things that either the french are better at than than the brits and the brits acknowledge that or vice versa mm, it's uh, it's always a bit difficult to make uh, sweeping generalizations, obviously, because everyone has their, their strengths and yeah. their weaknesses. But uh, certainly what is very cl- visible to any French person living here is how good British people tend to be with uh, the way they express ideas uh, orally. They, they, they're very good at it. I think the training in universities, what's yeah. called, is much better. Whereas, they use their language really well. Yeah. They use their language very well. Yeah. Uh, they have a way to put the nice, a, a nice word around an idea. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think French people are, uh, throughout their studies, quite focused on uh, expressing things um, in writing. So right. we certainly have a strong focus on writing things, on structuring things in a very, uh, in a very clear way. But it doesn't always come out very clearly when you express it. So those two, I think, are very complementary. If you take mm-hmm. someone who studied for a long time in France and someone who studied for a long time in the UK, if you mix those two uh, skills, it, it really makes for a powerful presentation, both yeah. written and, and oral. Is that something you feel personally as well, Pierre? Yeah, no, I think so. I, I certainly feel, uh, I had a very interesting case recently in a, in, let's say, a, a hearing in front of a regulator. Yeah. And there were presentations by um, both um, um, a French lawyer and, uh, and a British lawyer. Mm-hmm. And the audience, uh, the panel, if you want, was a mix of French and British citizens. Mm-hmm. And universally, without one single exemption, uh, there were uh, everyone, every French person thought the French lawyer was more clear, much more convincing. <laughs> every Brit, every British person found that the British lawyer was more convincing. Uh, and 
it, it's just very, very striking because I was there sitting in a room and I thought, yeah, the French person, although he was on the other side of the argument, was much better, much more convincing. But that's not at all what my British colleagues found. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, I, I guess the final point about this is, is more, it's not about the substance itself, it's the way also that you perceive it. So if sure. you've been raised in a way uh, and you are used to go into a, a very structured argument on a paper, then you will be able to to listen to it and understand it much ease much more easily than if you're just discovering it and have not been uh, taught in in that way. Yeah, yeah. If you're not aware of these things, they might go over your head, and you exactly. might become judgmental. Like, okay, either this British lawyer doesn't know what he's talking about, or 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 the French lawyer can't really deliver, depending on which side, of course, you stand. Yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed as a, a consumer of the Eurostar product, the high-speed uh, train service between, for me in this case, Brussels to uh, to London, is that you always seem to use, um, I think, Belgian staff on board this train. Is there any particular reason for that? Um, well, Belgians, first of all, are very, very good with languages, yeah. uh, as, as, as you would know. Yeah. Uh, so because there's a requirement when we run the train between Brussels and London to have Dutch, French, and English spoken on board, yeah. um, then Belgians tend to be natural candidates for this. Uh, we, we do have a mix. Uh, it depends on the time of the day you're traveling. For various reasons, we have rostering throughout the day, yeah. and sometimes you've got English crews traveling in the morning, and then Belgian crews traveling back in the evening. So it, it would depend. Uh, but one of my personal favorites sometimes is to try and spot the nationality of the crews uh, <laughs> by the way in which they, they, they speak the, the other languages. So usually it would yeah. be pretty easy for a French person to decide to, to, to see where he's coming from. A native uh, French, yeah. Yes, but a Dutch-speaking Belgian would usually be very good in all three languages. Yeah, I, I uh, guess it could so, yeah, be a bit more tricky to understand yeah, to, to know where it's coming from. Yeah, that's my experience as well. Um, you're expanding to uh, to the Netherlands, to the capital of the Netherlands, Amsterdam, as well. What do you foresee there in terms of cultural differences uh, being added, or I mean, in good parts, or maybe the the friction part? Yeah, I, the honest answer is I don't know. That's going to be in two years' time, so mm -hmm. I haven't really, on a personal basis, started the work there of of meeting with people. Uh, I've had. Dutch friends uh, over the years and my experience has always been that it's 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 a rather direct relationship in terms of working relationship so you know what you see is what you have yeah. um, and, and that's a very it's a rather good one to to have it's it, it makes things easy but I, I'm pretty sure there are things I'm missing and that I'll be learning along the way Okay, just curious uh, what what the uh, what the anticipation was. Um, just a personal question to you then, uh, because you have a lot of uh, experience yourself as well, a good cultural frame of reference, so to speak. What would be your personal pain and joy when working with with uh, different cultures? So one side is the, is the the painful side, and the other side is the the good side, the joyful side. Um. I start with the, with the, the joyful side because it's it's the one that springs to mind uh, quickest, uh -huh. but. Uh, I think what I really like is seeing what lies behind the language. Uh, one of the frustrations working at the European Union level is that you do have a, a common working language, which usually tends to be English, mm -hmm. uh, but you have very little of the of the cultural background to the language. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one thing I really enjoy being in London, for instance, is, is uh, getting to know the culture, the literature, the, the theatre, everything that lies behind the language and makes it a, a living language as, as in a position to just a means of communication. Right. So I, I like, I've always enjoyed speaking a language to communicate with others, but understanding not only 
how to express an idea, but where these ideas stem from is something which I find very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, on the on the negative side, I think there's always a, a difficulty of not being totally to the same level. Uh, you, you might have lived in a country for a very long time and still, uh, because you don't, you haven't been raised there, you don't understand all of the, of the subtleties. So mm. some of my colleagues... Uh, would come up with jokes about maybe comedy shows in the 80s and I've never heard of those really yeah. so I can look them up on, on YouTube uh, try and, and, and know a bit more about them but it's always it's a constant struggle to, to know what the references are yep. and it's th the same applies to my day-to-day -day job actually because uh, one of the things I, I need to do is in meetings express ideas but some of the language I might choose uh, might have connotations because it's been used 20 years ago by a politician and it's become uh, a famous phrase. So mm -hmm. what you think is a good way of expressing things might all of a sudden become something which uh, really redirects directly to uh, a period of time uh, in a totally different context. Yes, yes. Makes, makes good sense. Can you give an example? Is there a story that pops up in your mind that, you, that you're willing to share? Well, um, I, I learned recently, for instance, that the, the phrase green shoots of recovery, so again, just to express... Again, say that again, please. The, the, the phrase green shoots of recovery, so mm -hmm. just, you know, the first signs of the economy going back on, on its feet, mm -hmm. um, had been used 25 years ago by uh, a then Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, under the Thatcher government, I think. And it was ridiculed at the time by the entire political class because the economy wasn't doing well. So using that kind of phrase, for instance, is, is very politically uh, charged and yeah. you, you, you probably should avoid it if, uh, unless you want to, to refer to this directly. Yes, yeah. you, and you can't, well, it's really hard if you're not, if you, well, in the, like you say, if you haven't lived in that country in that period of time, you, you will not know these, uh, these kinds of sensitivities, really. Yeah, and, and it's, 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 it's these moments when you realize that growing up in a country, even without noticing it, you, you soak up so much of the, of the overall culture atmosphere around you. Yeah. Uh, so even if you're not a, a British citizen, if you, if you do grow up in the UK, certainly you, you, you pick up all of this. Uh, but if you're a British citizen, for instance, growing up outside of the UK, I suspect you might be in the same situation as a Frenchman living in the UK for a long time. Sure. You're just slightly cut off from your, from your culture. Yes, makes good sense. Um, as a, going back in time a little bit, you, as a young boy, well, sort of young boy, younger at least than you're now, in the 2000s, you went to Canada, from France to Canada, and then to Brussels, and then uh, to London. Go back, if you can go back in your memory, what were the, the culture shocks that you experienced there, and possibly in stories, if you can remember some? Uh, surprisingly enough, I think my, my culture shocks have very often been around supermarkets. So uh, very simply, because that's usually the first thing you encounter when you settle in a country. So yeah. arriving in, in Canada, when Belgium, when the UK, you just need to go for some grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. And the way, uh, the way the supermarket is organized, what kind of products they might have, what kind of products they, they don't have, yeah. is always quite surprising. So... I think I realized that France had a passion for yogurts when I moved to Canada, just because there were not that many yogurts in Canada, neither were there in, in Belgium, for instance. So it's very trivial, uh, but it's one of those yeah. first things that makes you realize that, yes, things are different uh, in different places. Um, and then closer to, well, in, in London now, comparing to, to Belgium, uh, certainly the um, the level, let's say, the, the quality of service in restaurants in uh, in Brussels in London is uh, it's a very different kind of service. I think I've always liked Brussels for the very uh, 
how to call it politely, genuine service. Mm-hmm. If the waiter is in a good mood, he'll be the best of waiters. Yeah. Uh, but if he's in a bad mood, you usually will have a rather bad day yourself because <laughs> he, he will not make an effort. Yeah. Um, London is more, uh, the, the British way of waitering is probably a bit more professional. Right. Uh, and maybe a bit colder to it. There's less uh, warmth to it than sometimes you get in Brussels. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, it sounds it sounds really <laughs> indeed. Like, these trivial things still shape up how you experience a culture, isn't it? Yeah. No. It, 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 it's it's all of those. I think it's interesting because if you ask me for something which is a major difference, yeah. uh, I would probably struggle because when you live in big countries nowadays uh, and big cities, big capital cities, yeah, uh, probably. In many cases, you would be able to live more or less in the same way as you lived before. Um, but it, it's more of the small things on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. One thing that did, for instance, uh, strike me as very different when I arrived here was the, the whole attitude to uh, fire safety. Uh, London, I don't know if it's linked to the Great Fire of 1666, is yeah. very fire conscious in a way that most continental countries in Europe wouldn't. Exactly. And uh, you you would, for instance, find no electrical plugs at all in, in, the, in the bathrooms. Uh, you would have very sensitive fire alarms. And I know for a fact that a lot of French people living in, uh, in London in apartments would usually, at some times when they do some cooking, disconnect the fire alarm just because it's so sensitive that you can't cook anything. Right. Uh, Again, a very trivial detail, but uh, but one that if you start discussing about it in a French gathering in London, I'm sure you will have a lot of, of feedback on. Yeah, yeah, really, really interesting examples, and uh, typically down to the bone where culture actually lies. Because there, I mean, in terms of when it comes to cultural differences, there are no big signs like either do this or don't do this. It's the subtlety and it's the unwritten rules that typically make up a a culture. Um, being being still the native Frenchman in London, what is the thing you miss most? Hmm. Um, the baguette? Not really, actually. That's something that, uh, surprisingly, I missed uh, more in Brussels than in London. Mm. Uh, London is, is probably a very specific place because you have so many French people living there. Mm. I think it's up to 500,000 uh, today. My goodness. Uh, and it, it does mean that you have a lot of very good quality baguettes, uh, very good quality croissant and so on. Uh, so I can't say that from a food perspective or a patisserie perspective, I'm really frustrated. Yeah. Um, so no, I didn't miss much really, but I think London is probably a bit exceptional in that sense. Like any major city like New York, probably you, you do get so many different yeah. cultures that if you really crave, if you're really craving something, you, you can find it. Um, but uh, no, I, I'm, I'm glad to say I'm not suffering from any any major um, loss from from my home country. <laughs> and then again, you're only two uh, two hours and fifty minutes away from Paris. And and, and that's an important one too. Yeah. It's true that the uh, working for US obviously makes it a bit easier for me. But my, my job and the, the job before means I'm very often uh, back in Paris yeah. or back in France. So although I haven't lived in France since 2003, so that's now 11 years, yeah. uh, I've always been quite close to it and I've come back to it very, very often. So I've never really felt, never really been in that situation where uh, a bit like it was in Canada, you're really far away, you don't go back often mm. and uh, you probably immerse yourself much more when, you, when you're in that kind of situation. Uh, whether it's Brussels or Paris, both are, Brussels or London, both are very close to, to home. Yeah. 
and that makes it uh, makes it a different situation. Okay, really makes good sense. Um, can you give the audience uh, three tips um, out of your own personal experience in terms of how to improve their cultural competence when they are working internationally? And then and then it went quiet. <laughs> are you still there, Pierre? Yes, I am. Sorry, I totally missed how to improve, but then I, I okay. lost you totally. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry about that's, this. that's all right. Um, so I'll repeat the question again. From your own personal experience, can you give the audience something like three tips for improving their cultural competence when working internationally? Um, I think I always like reading newspapers and watching TV. Uh, and that's not just for the TV itself, or mm-hmm. of it, but I, I do think you learn a lot about... Um, a country or a place by looking at everything it's the news it's the kind of tv programs it's the way that people are dressed what they say yeah. what the references are what the advertising is uh, even so uh, a bit counterintuitively i think spending some time at home and, and watching tv rather avidly in the first weeks mm-hmm. is, is pretty useful um the second one is just discussing with locals because uh i i've never had an experience abroad where if you come with uh, in a respectful manner, yeah. if you just ask questions and, and and explain what you have noticed, you will usually uh, create a lot of, of interest from 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 the, the the person living there, and they will maybe explain to you how to how to make the best out of the country or why this difference yeah. is the way it is. Yeah. Um, as for a third one, it probably refers to what I was saying a bit earlier, which is uh, always keeping in mind that things might be different uh, or might be done differently in another place and that it's not right or wrong, it's yeah. just different. Okay. Uh, and, and, and even in a multicultural environment, uh, you, 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 might, you might forget it just because it's, it's, it's a natural and human thing to just do things the way you've always done them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's apparently how it works, I guess. Okay, great tips. Thank you for that. Um, Pierre, if um, people want to get in touch with you, how could they do that? Um, I think the best is probably to contact me on um, well on LinkedIn. Uh, although I, I know you had some difficulties finding me, but they uh, I, I will probably send you the, the link to my profile, and you can put it on the website, I suppose. Yes. And and then uh, I'm very happy for for anyone to you know contact me, and and then we can discuss whatever they want to to discuss. But that's something I I'm very happy to do. I do quite often, uh, yeah. usually more for people looking for jobs and things like this, but. Uh, it's. I always find it interesting to exchange with people and see what they're interested in, how they how they approach an issue. Excellent. Okay, we'll put you uh, your link, your unique URL um, of your LinkedIn profile on the show notes that can be found on culturematters.com slash zero one four zero fourteen. That is because we're recording the fourteenth episode of the Culture Matters podcast. Pierre de Lalande, thank you so much for your uh, taking the time in this um, on this Thursday morning. I hope it's uh, it's a bit sunny where you are. Uh, at least it is in Brussels. So, um, are you are you having good weather there? It, it, it is for now. It hasn't been for a long time, uh, but now it's. I'm, I'm glad to report the sun is totally <laughs> shining and the sky is blue. So thanks a lot to you, Chris, and uh, I hope it's going to be useful to all of your listeners around the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Pierre, again for doing the interview. It's been a great pleasure. I hope the uh, audience also thinks that this was interesting, delivered some value. And if you do think that the Culture Matters podcast actually does deliver value to your intercultural competence, why don't you give this podcast a five-star rating? You can do that by going to iTunes, uh, look up the uh, the podcast itself, 
and then click on the ratings and review tab and then leave your comments right there i'd really appreciate that if you would do that it would actually um, uh, help for other people to find this this content as well this podcast as well and more people can benefit from the value that you got out of this as well thanks again for listening i'll be back real soon with yet another interview thank you bye-bye that's it for this episode The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.